Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you teach us through it. Thank you that through your word you make us wise for salvation. Please give us ears to hear, eyes to see, humble hearts uh, to receive, uh, and empower us by your spirit to walk in faithfulness to you. I pray, Father, especially that um, your word would land on our hearts uh, tonight, that we would um, let this word uh, shape how we see you, uh, how we see uh, what Christ has done. We thank you for this uh, word, uh, that it does teach us more about the riches of Christ. So we pray for your help, and we thank you that we're able to gather here in your name. We do pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, chapter 26, let's read it. Sorry, before I read it actually, just to set it in context, um, we're coming to the end of Leviticus. Uh, He has, uh, he's just finished uh, giving uh, a long uh, list of instructions about the various festivals that the Israelites are to have throughout the year, and then every seven, <coughs> every seven years, every 49 years. Uh, prior to that, there was a, um, some instructions for priests, and prior to that, there were, were various instructions for all of Israel. And all of that came off the back of um, Leviticus chapter 16, which I've been arguing is the centre of... Uh, of the book of Leviticus. So from uh, chapter 16, which was the Day of Atonement, um, uh, flowing out of the Day of Atonement has come a number of instructions for how the Israelites are to live and for how the priests are to uh, conduct their duties and requirements for them to be priests. And now we're coming to the end of Leviticus. And this is a, in a way, what's happening is... uh, the Lord is restating the terms of the covenant. Because what has just, what we've just read up to this point in in chapters 1 to 25 have been instructions, have been laws and regulations that the Lord established at Mount Sinai between himself and the Israelites through Moses. So let's read. Uh, Do not make for uh, idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves and do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am Yahweh your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am Yahweh. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will, be, will continue until grape harvest, and the grape, grape harvest will continue until planting, and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand. And your enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will look on you with favour and make you fruitful and increase your numbers. And I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. 
I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am Yahweh, the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, so that uh, you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws, and fail to carry out all my commands, and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. If after all this you will uh, not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. If you remain hostile towards me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. If, in spite of these things, you do not accept my correction, but continue to be hostile towards me, I myself will be hostile towards you and will afflict you for your sins seven times over, and I will bring the sword on you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. When you withdraw into your cities, I will, spe- I will send a plague among you, and you will be given into enemy hands. When I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will be able to make your bread in one oven, and they will dole out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. If, in spite of this, you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile towards me, then in my anger I will be hostile towards you, and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols." and I will abhor you. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries, and I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I myself will lay waste the land, so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations, and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste, and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate, and you are in the country of your enemies." Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. As for those of you who are left, I will make their hearts so fearful in the lands of their enemies that the sound of a wind-blown leaf will put them to flight. They will run as though fleeing from the sword and they will fall, even though no one is pursuing them. They will stumble over one another as though fleeing from the sword, even though no one is pursuing them. So you will not be able to stand before your enemies. You will perish among the nations. The land of your enemies will devour you. Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of their enemies because of their sins, also because of their ancestors' sins they will waste away. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, 
their unfaithfulness and their hostility towards me, which made me hostile towards them, so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. Then, when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths, while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord, their God. But for, the sake, but for their sake I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. These are the decrees, the laws and the regulations that the Lord established at Mount Sinai between himself and the Israelites through Moses. So that's, uh, you can see where we are at the end of the, um, at the end of the instructions there. And what's happening is the Lord sets forth then a kind of final statement. He set forth all of the instructions and now he's uh, giving the consequences for either obeying the instructions or for disobeying the instructions. On the one hand, if there is obedience of, of the Lord's instructions, there will be blessing on the people. If there's disobedience against the Lord's instructions, the Lord's curse will be upon the people. Now, before we uh, uh, go any further, I just want to say a short word about curses and about the Lord's judgment in general here. Because it's not too hard to spot that what, um, what is written from verses 14 to 45 is pretty heavy and can come as a bit of a jolt to us. Perhaps even uh, causing us to think, hold on, is this the right God that we've got here? But first thing I want to say is that the God's judgment or his curse against sin is clear in Scripture and it's actually all over the place. It's no surprise. These, this uh, chapter that we've read is not an anomaly in the Bible. I'll just give a couple of examples. Uh, right from the very beginning... Uh, God told Adam in the garden that um, he was to eat from he was able to eat from any tree in the garden, but if he was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day he would die. And sure enough, Genesis chapter three uh, shows us that Adam is kicked out of the garden, the, the ground is cursed, and Adam is punished for his sin. It's not strange from the very beginning. God has been somebody who punishes those who do not do his commands. Uh, in Genesis chapter 18, just moving forward a few chapters, uh, you have uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah who are filled with wickedness. Uh, they are probably um, inhospitable. They, um, uh, it may be that uh, uh, homosexuality or just sexual licentiousness in general are the issues um, and, but perhaps it, perhaps, perhaps sorry, um, is actually social injustice is perhaps even their, their greatest sin 
and the Lord hears about it, he comes down to see whether it's the case, and uh, he does see, yes, this is a wicked, uh, these are wicked cities, and so he destroys those cities with everybody in them. It's not strange. Uh, the Lord judging sinfulness is not an anomaly. Moving forward, uh, and this will be the last one just uh, here, but you can uh, read the Bible yourself and see lots more occasions. Um, in Exodus, the Lord brings ten plagues upon the nation of Egypt. Uh, as he's bringing his people out of Egypt, he offers Pharaoh um, nine times uh, the offer to let his people go. He says no, he says no, and the Lord brings judgment, the Lord brings judgment, the Lord brings judgment. Uh, and he brings it in such a way that it actually, it genuinely harmed the people of Egypt. Uh, in the end, when the, uh, the, uh, when the Lord says enough is enough, uh, the final plague, he actually takes the firstborn of every uh, family of cattle and of people uh, in the whole uh, country. So there's nothing new here. The Lord's judgment against sin is clear in Scripture. So we shouldn't uh, be surprised by this. Um, and secondly, that's because it's rooted in the character of God. An important verse to know in the Bible is Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. You should have that one perhaps memorised uh, because it teaches us something key about the Lord and it, and it holds out a tension that runs right through the Bible. And I'll just read it to you. It's Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. It says, And he passed in front of Moses... Uh, sorry, the context is the Lord... He goes up a mountain, Mount Sinai, and he asks the Lord, I want you to show me your glory. The Lord says, Hide in the rock, I'll pass by you. You won't see my face, but you'll see my back, and I will show you my glory. He goes past him, and then this is what the Lord says. So he's giving Moses a window into what he is like. And, he, and the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He's gracious and compassionate and you see there it says he's slow to anger. It doesn't say that he doesn't get angry, but he's slow to anger. And then he says, but he will by no means let the, leave the guilty unpunished. It's rooted in the character of God. The Lord is holy and he judges sin. Now, as, a, as a, a final thing to say on this, uh, the act of God's judgment against uh, wickedness, is just to say, as it's clearly biblical, that's my point there to make, it is clearly biblical, that is, we're reading scripture rightly when we say that the Lord judges sin. And if we just move out to think, is there a way to perhaps help us to understand this a little bit more personally? Uh, and I think uh, an analogy may help, and that is that if we imagine our own impulse towards justice, 
that impulse that we have when we hear about perhaps that um, the human trafficking that happens or perhaps when we hear about uh, some other sin that gets your back up. If you imagine that kind of um, that sense within you that cries out for justice and that anger against uh, that wickedness. Imagine that that is a bit like the warmth on your skin in terms of heat. But then look up to the sun and, and consider the fire and the heat of the sun. That's perhaps analogical to the holiness of the Lord, like the burning of the sun, in its passion and in its purity. And that sense that we feel is only equivalent to the warmth on our skin uh, that the sun has, has provided for us. You see, the Lord has built into us that impulse towards justice as he's left a remnant of uh, the image of God uh, in us, in our fallen character. And so we, we have these, this, this sense of, uh, of recognising that it's wrong still in us, but it is only a trace. That's perhaps a way to, to see how that works. Now, I'm just going to kind of, we're going to try to catch a little flow here now as we move through um, this chapter to work out what's actually going on. Um, the first thing to say um, is that these, uh, sorry, and, and the final thing about, um, uh, about these curses, we'll do it backwards. So we'll do curses first and we'll do blessings second. Um, and, and the reason I want to drill down on the curses, and I may be labouring the point a little bit, is because I still hear too much of this today, of a God who is not angry against sin. But look how clear it is in this chapter. Look at these curses as well. In verse 16, it is diseases. I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases. Just think about that. There is the nation of Israel, and they have broken the covenant, and they are wasting away with diseases. The Lord says that he will have done that. In verse 17, he says that he, the, the enemies of the Lord's people will come against them. Think about what that would have been like. Armies coming through, slaughtering people. Uh, they would have been taking women, taking children. Wives would have been taken, children would have been taken. People would have been strung up outside of the city, impaled, uh, is some of the um, things that they would do to show that as they were besieging the city, absolutely horrific the scenario would have been. Uh, if we press on in 19, we see that, that the Lord is even in control over the weather. He says he'll stop the rain from falling. In verse 20, he'll stop the trees from bearing their fruit. If we press on into uh, verse 29, he says that there will be cannibalism. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. So within the nation of Israel, things have got so bad 
that people are so desperate for food, they are literally eating their children. And if we were to read it right, when that situation happened, we should be saying, the Lord's wrath is upon these people. That needs to play into the factor of how we understand what's happening in Israel at that time. It's not just that God has given people a kind of free will and people are uh, people are the only factor in the suffering that they would have been experiencing. Because he says here, if in spite of this you do you still do not listen to me but continue to be hostile towards me, then in my anger I will be hostile towards you and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. And then verse 29, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. That is how it will happen. You see, what's, what, what happens is the Lord hands people over to their sin. And so both parties are involved. The Lord is not responsible, as it were, for the, the one party um, eating their child. But the Lord, by way of secondary agency, as theologians have put it, um, is, still, is still giving people over to their own wickedness. And this is where they go. So the Lord is both active in it, he stops the rain, he stops the plants, he sends nations, and he gives the people over to their sins. So there's severity in these curses, and I think that we're supposed to feel that. The second thing to note, however, is not just the severity. Notice the patience in the curses. Did you see that? Did you see how repeated he says, um, look at verse 18, if after all this you will not, uh, you will not listen to me. You see that? It's the persistently rebellious child who's disciplined and does it again, and is disciplined and does it again. And verse 21, if you remain hostile towards me and refuse to listen to me, and then verse 23, if in spite of these things you do not accept my instruction, my correction, but continue to be hostile towards me. You see that? Verse 27, look how many times he's, he, he repeats it. He so wants them to know it's the patience of the Lord. If in spite of this you still do not listen to me. So even within this severity, we can see the patience of the Lord. And finally, you can see that according to his covenant... He is he's the kind of God, when he makes a covenant, he keeps his covenant, doesn't he? Look at this. But for the sake of their covenant, um, uh, Wednesday, I will not reject them, verse 44, or abhor them so as to destroy them completely. As the nation is whittled down, and down, and down, and down, after hundreds of years, there is still a remnant that is not destroyed completely. It's the patience of the Lord. And likewise, that is rooted in the character of God as he's patient with Pharaoh, gives him time and time again. And here he's patient with Israel. And finally, looking at these curses, we learn something of their purpose. The purpose is not, if we read this um, 
this, this, these curses, and we're driven to a sense of the injustice of the Lord, then we've read them wrong. That's not where we're supposed to go. We're not supposed to think, look at what he does, he must be unjust. What we're meant to think is, look at what he does, wow, he must be holy, wow, we must be sinful, not, he must be unjust. This is teaching us not about how unjust God is, but about, in fact, how just he is, and how serious idolatry is. These verses help us to see how bad idolatry is and how bad sin is. So it's as though you take all that sense of man that's intense and drive it into your understanding of idolatry and sin. Right, that's the curses. It's not just curses though, is it? It's blessings as well. And so we see that in uh, verses uh, 3 through to 13, the Lord says, uh, notice here, really important, uh, the first word in verse 3, if. You see that? If you follow my decrees. That's what the rest uh, from verses 3 through to 13 hangs off. It hangs off that idea if. If you follow my decrees, bless And look at the blessing. It's the, it's the same but the converse of, of the curses. Uh, you'll have rain at the right time. Perfect weather. You'll have crops. You'll have safety. You'll have strength and victory. And you'll multiply and increase your numbers. Verse 9. It's, it's almost like uh, you will be like uh, Adam and Eve should have been in the Garden of Eden. You will multiply, you'll be fruitful and you'll increase. It's worth noting at this point uh, that what we've got set before us is only two options. And that's a theme in Scripture, isn't it? Running right through Scripture, there are only two options. There's obedience, there's disobedience, there's blessing and there's purpose. It runs right through the Bible. That's what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. He says there are two paths. There's either the broad gate or there's the narrow one. Only two ways. He says, if anybody's not gathering with me, they are scattering. And that exposes that, uh, uh, that, that, that modern assumption that, that neutrality is a thing. There's no neutrality. Agnosticism with respect to Jesus is not possible. That's just not. You wake up and you either are following him or you're not following him. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. There are only two options. That's got to be clear in our minds. And these options for the Israelites hang on that word if. Now, here's the thing. What we're reading are the terms, we have to get this really clear, are the terms of the covenant. This is how the blessing applies. All those lists of instructions up to this point, they are the instructions. This is how the instructions work. You have to keep them. 
You see that? That again challenges the modern assumption when we think about a relationship with God. We either assume that we'll just have a relationship with God, or we feel as though perhaps we're entitled to a relationship with God. Uh, But here we have the Lord laying out these are the terms of the relationship. And what the relationship holds out is it both holds out the blessing in the land, but it holds out an increase, the prospect of an even greater blessing. Look in verse 12. This is, this is the prospect, right? I will, be, um, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. That's like the sweet spot there. That's almost like going back to the Garden of Eden. He's been in the tabernacle, but if they're faithful as they get into the land, it's almost as though there's the prospect of an even greater blessing if the people are faithful to the covenant and that the Lord himself will walk among them. That's, that's, a, that's an increase. That's, that's raised uh, the bar from what's previously happened. What we've, what we've learned about up to this point in Leviticus is that he will dwell among them, that is, he'll be in his tent among them, and they will come to him, but now he's the one walking amongst them. That sounds like it might be Eden. So there's the prospect of the greater blessing to come. That's what's held out for the Israelites now in this covenant. And it all hangs on a do this and live principle. So if we just flick back to chapter 18 uh, and verse 5, it says, uh, (coughs) this is where he begins these uh, series of instructions after chapter 16, and um, which 16 and 17 go together, and chapter 18 moves then into um, into the instructions. He says, You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. Or the person who does them will live by them. You see that? There's contingency, if, and there's obligation, do. And that's exactly what Paul picks up on in Galatians chapter 3, (coughs) verse 12 he says this the law is not based on faith on the contrary it says the person who does these things will live by them you hear that? the law is not based on faith on the contrary it says the person who does these things will live by them It's the do this and live principle. There's contingency, if, and obligation. Do this. And let's think about the expectation. Again, in Galatians, this is verse 10 now, Paul makes it clear. Uh, The expectation is not for partial, whoever does some of these things, but all things. Look at verse, well, if you've got, if you've got Galatians 3.10 there with you, uh, 3 with you, you look at verse 10. If not, I'll read it. Now, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in everything written in the book of the law. When Paul's referring to the book of the law there, he's referring back to what's given through Moses, the instruction given through Moses. Perhaps the whole, the first five books of um, uh, of the Bible, uh, but certainly including uh, Leviticus, 
um, as he's quoted Leviticus already, the person who does these things will live by them, he's already quoted Leviticus, uh, and this quote is from Deuteronomy. It says, and, and both of those books, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, hold out uh, this, this, the terms of the covenant, the blessings and the curse, and Deuteronomy itself is full of it. So that's Paul saying, all things, in everything. James chapter 2, verse 10 to 11, uh, he says exactly the same thing. He says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Why? Because a break against the law is a break against the person who gave it. That's what he goes on. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So there's contingency, if, there's obligation, do, and there's expectation. All things written in the book of the law. Next point is that there's danger. (coughs) Galatians again, chapter 3 verse 10, spells this out for us. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. There's the danger, we've heard about it. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue. But how could it be that everybody who relies on the works of the law are under a curse? What if we were doing it well, Paul might say? I think because the logic here is that as sinful people, we don't. And so when you put the sinful person underneath the law, you put them in a situation of impossibility. They can't do it. And Israel, because he's talking about the law here, we must remember that Israel functions as a microcosm. You remember that? Israel functions like a little test case of the whole world. Romans uh, chapter 2 tells us that in the future there is going to be a judgment and it's going to be according to works. There's going to be a judgment for the whole world And it's going to be based on this same do this and live principle that we see uh, in the law. This is what he says in Romans chapter 2. When his righteous uh, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favouritism. So everybody, Jews and Gentiles, judged according to what they do. All who sin apart from the law will will perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, so now this is coming to us, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So there's the danger. 
wrath remains on people because, as Romans, uh, Paul's already said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness of people. Now, before we come into land and find out what's going to happen next, I think we, uh, we just pause to feel this. We've got to get this right in our understanding of the Bible. Israel has made a covenant with the Lord. The covenant holds out the prospect of life. The one who does them will live by them. It holds out that hope and that longing that we have that the Lord might walk among us, that we might be his people and he would be our God. And it holds it out to us on contingency. There's a, an if. There's an expectation. It's all things. But as we look at our lives, we see there's a great danger. And we have to feel that. This is how you can have salvation. This is how you can have a relationship with the Lord. We're, there is frustration and helplessness. That's, how we, that's what we should end up feeling. And that's where we can go uh, and begin to rejoice when we hear what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. So here is an offer of life that is apart from the law. This righteousness, this offer of life, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. But now, there is a righteousness by faith. So Paul says in Galatians 3.13, that is because somebody has borne the curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. So the, 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 the I suppose the big point that I want to make as we come to close is to see that uh, is to see and feel the way the old covenant worked and then from that place be able to see and feel that in Christ we are not in that covenant anymore. That's not how our relationship with the Lord works. But we're so bent towards that, to that um, principle of uh, our own works um, being the means by which we are saved, being the means by which we have righteousness and life. Um, but we have to remember that following Jesus doesn't equal entering into a Leviticus covenant or a Leviticus-type covenant. We don't enter into a do-this-and-live uh, principle. We enter into a... Uh, righteousness by faith covenant. We enter into the new covenant that Christ made 
uh, we enter into a covenant that he made by his own blood, uh, making a way for us to uh, enter the heavenly Sabbath rest. Uh, He made a way for us to experience uh, the Lord walking among us, dwelling among us. And he's done that now by uh, the spirit that he's poured out uh, to us. So, thus uh, we, we come to an end for tonight and uh, we will finish our time by singing a song. We'll sing Immortal Invisible and the reason I choose this song is because uh, there's one line in there, by justice like mountains, by soaring above, uh, by clouds which are full, fountains of goodness and love. Uh, But just, it's perhaps a song to lift up our eyes to see his own holiness and his height. Um, And then after that we'll sing Man of Sorrows because it speaks about um, the curse of sin no longer has any hold on us uh, because Christ has borne the curse for us on the cross. And he's made a way for us to have life. Um, Not by the Levitical covenant, not by that old way, uh, but by the new and living way. So I'll say a quick prayer and then we'll stand and we'll sing. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Uh, we pray, God, that you would help us to um, have a right view of you. Thank you that you've delivered us from the curse of the law. Uh, that that's not uh, applicable for us uh, in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you did bear the curse on our behalf. And we pray that um, as we walk out our daily lives with you, that we would not uh, revert back to um, uh, thinking and living and treating you as though we live in the old covenant. We pray for help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.